sacred scripture tonight from Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. read the whole of Genesis chapter 20, and the chapter as a whole is the text for our sermon tonight. Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, She is my sister? She, even she herself, said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And God said unto him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. Now therefore restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Therefore Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and told all these things in their ears, and the men were sore afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham, and said unto him, What hast thou done unto us? And what have I offended thee? that thou hast brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. Thou hast done deeds unto me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said unto Abraham, What sawest thou that thou hast done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. And yet indeed she is my sister, She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness, which thou shalt show unto me. At every place, whither we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. And Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and men servants and women servants, and gave them unto Abraham, and restored him Sarah his wife. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee, dwell where it pleaseth thee. And unto Sarah he said, Behold, I have given thy brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. 
read the Word of God that far. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, with this history here, we are on the eve of the fulfillment of the covenant promise and the birth of the wonder child, Isaac. The next chapter, chapter 21, we read that Isaac was conceived and born of Abraham and Sarah in their old age. But on the eve of the fulfillment of that great covenant promise of God, we see unbelief on the part of Abraham, the father of all the faithful. It's a reminder that the Word of God deals honestly with His people in describing them as they actually are. The Word of God does not gloss over the sins and the weaknesses of God's saints, but presents them to us as they actually are, warts and all. We ought to see ourselves, therefore, in these Old Testament saints. Not only in this chapter, but in the preceding chapters do we see weakness and sin on the part of God's people. Back in chapter 18... There were three angels that came to Abraham and to Sarah to repeat to them the promise that from them would come Isaac. But at that occasion, there was sin on the part of Sarah. She hid behind the tent door and she laughed in unbelief that in her old age, she would bring forth that child. Then in the next chapter, chapter 19, There's a record of the folly of God-fearing Lot, the nephew of Abraham. Initially, he had pitched his tent in the direction of Sodom, but in chapter 19, we find him and his family living right in the city, and they're only spared the destruction that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah by God, as it were, snatching him as a brand out of the fire. Now here in chapter 20, there's record of sin on the part of Abraham. Abraham lies with respect to his wife, a lie born out of unbelief. He jeopardizes from a human point of view the covenant mother and the covenant child and the covenant promises. It's only by a marvelous display of God's mercy and his grace that Abraham and Sarah and the covenant child is preserved. What's important to note about the sin of Abraham here is that this is not the first time that he committed this particular sin. Twenty-five years earlier, he had committed almost the identical sin in almost identical circumstances. John Calvin, in commenting on this chapter, puts it well when he says Abraham 
strikes his foot against the same stone. Twenty-five years earlier, Abraham had struck his foot against a stone of unbelief and he stumbled over that into sin. And now 25 years later, he strikes his foot against the exact same stone and he stumbles into the exact same sin. How familiar that is, isn't that? How often don't you and I strike our feet against the same stones so that we fight against and battle with and fall into again and again and again the same old sin. that makes this history a study in backsliding, the backsliding of God's people into their besetting sins. But at the same time, this is a study in the faithfulness of God. At any time that we consider the stumblings of God's saints and their besetting sins, at the same time we're considering the faithfulness of God. Though we are unfaithful and we fall into the same sins again and again, God is faithful to preserve us to the end. That in mind, let's consider this passage under the theme of study in backsliding. Just two points. First of all, the sin of Abraham. And secondly, the faithfulness of God. Prior to this history, Abraham and Sarah were settled in the plains of Mamre. Mamre was the name of an Amorite man, and he lived near the city of Hebron, which was in the southern part of the land of Canaan. There Abraham and Sarah had settled for a time. Now for some unknown reason, they pull up their tent stakes, and they travel south of the land of Canaan into the wilderness area. And having traveled through the wilderness south of the land of Canaan for a time, they circle back around then toward the Mediterranean Sea and the coasts of the Philistines. And they eventually settle near the city of Gerar, which was one of the cities of the Philistines. While they're there, Abraham fears that the men of the city are going to take his life in order to take his wife, that they're going to kill him in order to take Sarah to be their wife. And so he lets it be known that Sarah is not his wife, but his sister. And because there are no little children that are running around their tent, they can pass off that lie. Abimelech notices Sarah. Abimelech is the king of the city of Gerar. And Abimelech is not his actual proper name, but it's a reference to his title. As Pharaoh 
is the king of the Egyptians, so Abimelech is the king of the Philistines. And this king Abimelech has his eye on Sarah, and when he hears that this is Abraham's sister, he takes Sarah into the harem of his many wives. There are some who explain that action on the part of Abimelech as being motivated purely by political advantage. The argument is that at this point, Sarah is 89 years old. She can't possibly have been as attractive as she was years before. And so they say Abimelech takes her to be one of his wives merely as a political expedient. He wants an alliance with Abraham. Abraham is wealthy. Abraham is a powerful and an influential chieftain in that area. And Abimelech wants peace with Abraham. And he thinks to cement their alliance by taking this man's supposed sister to be one of his wives. There may be some truth to that, that there was a political motive on the part of Abimelech in taking Sarah, but the chapter here indicates that there's more to it than that as well. Abimelech had, in addition to any political motivations, physical romantic, sexual intentions with Sarah. That's indicated in the chapter by the unique judgment of God that he brings upon Abimelech and his house for this sin. Verse 4 says Abimelech had not come near her. And in verse 6, God explains, therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. And Coming near her and touching her are referring to physical and sexual nearness and touch. And that's made very plain by the last two verses of the chapter. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The unique judgment of God upon Abimelech touched on the ability of Abimelech and the women in his household to have children. It's necessary that Abimelech be healed, and it's necessary that the women in his household be healed in order for them to bear children. And that unique judgment of God upon the house of Abimelech indicates that there was something more and the actions of Abimelech here in taking Sarah to be his wife. Abraham is found out in his lie, and he tries to explain to Abimelech why he did what he did. He gives three reasons for doing so. First of all, verse 11 And Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. When Abraham comes to Gerar, he suspects that there's no fear of God there. And if there's no fear of God, they're not going to have any respect for Abraham. And he thinks that they are going to take Sarah to be their wife, and to do so, they're going to kill him. 
And his concern is for saving his own skin. And that's extreme cowardice and selfishness on the part of Abraham. He's willing to endanger the purity and the honor of the covenant mother in order to save his own life. And then secondly, Abraham says in verse 12, And yet indeed, she is my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Abraham explains that there's a a kernel of truth in that lie that he told. Sarah is his sister, his half-sister to be precise. They have the same father, but a different mother. And then thirdly, Abraham says in verse 13, And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said unto her, This is thy kindness which thou shalt show unto me. At every place whither we shall come, say of me, He is my brother. Abraham and Sarah had established this plan many years ago. When years before they had left the land of their fathers. And the agreement was between them that whenever they ran into trouble, whenever they felt threatened by some difficult circumstances, they would resort back to this old lie. Abraham would say of Sarah, She's only my sister. And Sarah would say of Abraham, he's only my brother. And in that way, they would attempt to save themselves. What is it that this word of God teaches us? What do we learn from this history about the Christian life? There are especially two things that this passage teaches us about the Christian life. In the first place, this passage is a warning to believers of the sin of unbelief. It's a warning to believers of the sin of unbelief. Unbelief is not a sin that's only committed by unbelievers. Unbelievers do commit the sin of unbelief. They live in unbelief. They do not have the gift of faith. But as believers who do have the gift of faith, we don't always live out of that faith. And There are times in our lives on account of the weakness of our faith where we are guilty of unbelief. Canons of Dort In Head 5, Article 4, explain converts, believers, Christians, converts, are not always so influenced and actuated by the Spirit of God as not in some particular instances sinfully to deviate from the guidance of divine grace so as to be seduced by and comply with the lusts of the flesh. Abraham was guilty of unbelief. Yes, his sin was also the sin of lying, and there's a warning in that respect here, but what stands behind the lie of Abraham is unbelief. He lies about Sarah because he does not trust that God will care for him and for Sarah. 
Now, if you would have asked Abraham in that moment, Abraham, do you believe that there's a God in heaven who is God alone, and do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that He loves His people? Undoubtedly, Abraham would have said, yes, I believe all of those things. I don't doubt those truths. The trouble here with Abraham is not that he's beginning to to doubt these truths about God. The trouble for Abraham is that he's not believing those truths in these particular circumstances of his life. He's not taking those truths and applying them to the particular painful circumstances in which he's found into the reality and the nitty-gritty of his life. These truths at that point are, in a sense, merely abstract and theoretical to Abraham. He's not believing in and trusting in God in this moment to care for him and for Sarah. We too, as believers, can have times where we are guilty of unbelief. We can have moments where in the midst of fearful circumstances, we do not trust in God, in His care, and in His love for us. In those moments, someone might ask us, do you believe that there's a God in heaven who is the only God? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe He loves His people? And our answer would undoubtedly be, yes, I I believe that. But the trouble for us is that we're not believing those truths in these particular circumstances of life, those things are, as it were, abstract and theoretical for us. We're not taking them and applying them to the actual nitty-gritty circumstances of life in which we find ourselves. We don't trust that God will care for us. We don't trust Him in the way in which He's leading us. We doubt Him. Sinful unbelief. This passage is a warning to us believers of unbelief and failure to trust in God. And implied, therefore, is the call to us to trust in God always, in all circumstances, and at all times. That first of all, is what we learn from this history. It's a warning to believers of the sin of unbelief. Secondly, this passage is also a warning to us with respect to backsliding into our besetting sins. This was not the first time that in unbelief, Abraham had lied about Sarah. 25 years before this, he had committed the same sin. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, we read that there was a famine in the land of Canaan, and Abraham, on account of that, sought refuge in Egypt. When he's in Egypt, Pharaoh has his eye upon Sarah. And in order to protect himself, 
Abraham lies. He says, Sarah is merely my sister. Now again, 25 years later, Abraham strikes his foot against that same stone. There are those who are higher critics of the word of God who deny that this history took place and there's a repetition of that sin on the part of Abraham. Their explanation is that that sin before, recorded in chapter 12, this history here in chapter 20, and an additional instance in the life of Isaac where he commits a similar sin in chapter 26 of Genesis, the higher critics say these are all really referring to one event and one instance. And some editor of the Bible decided to repeat it in three different places and to to change the details of the stories to make a certain point in each of those instances. But that's unbelief with respect to the Word of God. This is not some book of stories that an editor decides to, to cut and to paste into different places. This is the living Word of God. This is real history. And knowing ourselves, is it really so difficult to imagine that Abraham would fall into the same sin more than once? Knowing how often we fall into the same sins, that rings true with us. This is a besetting sin on the part of Abraham. What aggravates the sin on this occasion is the fact that Abraham had been chastened by God for that sin 25 years before. But now the the memory of that painful chastening has faded from Abraham's mind. What aggravates that sin on the part of Abraham is that since that initial sin, Abraham has received a number of Wonderful revelations from God. So many promises of God's care for him and for Sarah and his giving to them the covenant seed. Still, in spite of that, Abraham does not trust God in his word. Abraham is a saint. He's a child of God. He has a beginning of the new obedience. But that beginning is small in Abraham. There's so much room for growth in him that Abraham continually needs to be tried and sanctified by the Lord. This passage therefore warns us respect to our own besetting sins. Our besetting sins are those sins that are uniquely a struggle for each one of us. Sins that we find ourselves facing and battling over and over again. Sins that we may fall into again and again in the Christian life. Sins that 
we reveal a particular weakness with respect to. Our besetting sins might be sins of impatience and anger. Besetting sin might be the besetting sin of lust. Perhaps it's gossip. Perhaps it's sinful worry and unbelief and failure to trust in God. Each one of us has our own besetting sins. And the warning to us is with respect to our backsliding. We may fall into a certain sin. And God in His grace delivers us out of that sin. He works in us repentance and sincere sorrow and turning. Only later, we fall back into it again. We slide backwards into that same besetting sin again. The truth is expressed in Romans 7. Verses 19 and following, For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? By the grace of God, we're saints, children of God. We've received the gift of faith. We're sanctified by the Spirit. We have a beginning of the new obedience, a wonderful, victorious beginning of the new obedience. But that's only ever a small beginning in this life. There's so much room for growth spiritually in all of us. We all stand in need of being tried and sanctified by the Lord. This passage teaches us what we expect in the Christian life. And the expectation is we're going to stumble into sin. Not that that excuses our sins in any way. It doesn't. But the painful reality of the Christian life in this world is that the good that we would, we don't do. And we find ourselves striking our foot and stumbling over the same stones. This passage is a warning to us that even when God in this life may give to us a certain measure of victory over our besetting sins, that we may never rest easy. God may in this life give a certain victory over a particular besetting sin. Perhaps that besetting sin is drunkenness. 
God gives deliverance so that we don't walk in drunkenness. Perhaps that besetting sin is an addiction to pornography. God gives a certain measure of victory so that we're not ensnared in the clutches of those sins. But though God may give a certain measure of victory in this life, we may not rest easy. We've revealed that by nature we are prone to that particular sin. There's a particular weakness with respect to that sin. The child of God, therefore, must ever be on his guard. This is the self-knowledge with which we must be armed. This knowledge of self ought to humble us. It ought to make us more careful in the Christian life. So that knowing ourself, knowing our besetting sins, we're watchful. We pray fervently. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This passage teaches us about backsliding. The main point of this word of God is not backsliding, the main point of this word of God is the faithfulness of God in preserving his backsliding children. Abraham had brought himself and Sarah into a terrible predicament. They had schemed that by lying they could protect themselves and now the covenant mother and the covenant seed are endangered. They're sunk down into the muck and the filth of their own sin without any apparent way of escape in themselves. And that's the nature of sin. Sin promises happiness. And the result is that we're left sunk in the the muck and the filth of it without any way of escape in ourselves. God delivers Abraham and Sarah, and preserves them. God appears to Abimelech in a dream at night. And the word of God to Abimelech is essentially this. Abimelech, you're a dead man. You're a dead man. You take this man's wife and you don't restore him, you're a dead man. God judges Abimelech and his household with some unknown infirmity that made it impossible for them to bear children. God did so on account of the fact that they'd sinned against him. Notice that in what God says in verse 6. For I also withheld thee from sinning against And we would think it should say there, Abraham, I've withheld thee from sinning against Abraham by doing anything with Sarah, his wife. But God says, I have withheld thee from sinning against me. Abimelech's sin was sin against Abraham, but especially was it sin against God. 
Adultery, which was the sin of Abimelech, was sin against God. God hates the sin of Abimelech because that sin is sin against him. As we read in Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. In our Reformed marriage form, one would think that the Reformed fathers had this history in view when they wrote these words, and that he, God, will aid and protect married persons even when they are least deserving it. God preserved Abraham and Sarah and their marriage by judging Abimelech and his house. Abimelech's response is that he did so in ignorance. He says in verse 5, In the integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. He says, My motives were pure, the integrity of my heart, and my actions were pure, the innocency of my hands. He says, I didn't know that she was Abraham's wife. Abraham said, this is my sister. Sarah said, he's my brother. I didn't know any differently. God says to Abimelech that, yes, Abimelech did that in his ignorance. God had preserved Sarah. Sovereignty of God is spoken of there. God says in verse 6, For I also withheld thee from sinning against me, Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. God displays his sovereignty in preserving Sarah, but he also says to Abimelech, if you don't restore Abraham's wife, you will die and the judgment will fall upon your house. Even though Abimelech sinned in ignorance, it was still sin of which he needed to repent. Early the next morning, Abimelech calls his servants, tells them what's happened. He then summons Abraham, and he scolds Abraham for his lying. He then restores Sarah to Abraham. He gives to Abraham a gift of sheep and oxen and servants and a thousand pieces of silver. He allows Abraham to live in any part of his land that Abraham would choose. Abimelech, before sending them away, also reproves Sarah. That's verse 16. He says, Behold, he is to thee a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee and with all other. Thus she was reproved. It's a difficult section to translate and understand But the best interpretation of that is that Abimelech is saying to Sarah, Abraham is like a veil or a covering to you. And by saying that Abraham is your brother rather than your husband, you've in effect thrown off that veil and that protective covering and you've exposed yourself to danger. Remember that since he's your husband, he's your veil, your covering, Your protector, don't so lightly throw that off. Then Abraham prays for Abimelech and his house, and God heals them. 
What this passage teaches us is the faithfulness of God in protecting and preserving his backsliding saints. That explanation is given in Psalm 105, verses 13 and following. We sang a versification of that before the sermon tonight. And Psalm 105 speaks directly to this history when it says, when they, Abraham and the fathers, went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he suffered no man to do them wrong. Yea, he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. That commentary, as it were, on our text indicates that this history speaks of God's protecting and preserving of his people. On account of the many temptations of this world that we face on account of our own sinful flesh, we not only stumble and fall into sin and go astray, but in ourselves we would continue in that way. Left to ourselves, we would go on and on astray in sin and be lost everlastingly. God must preserve us. And God in His mercy and His grace does preserve us. God so preserves us that though we stumble into sin, He does not allow us to go lost everlastingly and to forfeit our salvation. We're held in His hand and there's none who can pluck us out of it. God sovereignly, graciously preserves us throughout this life and our salvation to the end and to glory. God preserves us by preserving in us the incorruptible seed of regeneration. Having been regenerated and receiving the new life of Jesus Christ, that's something that can never be taken away and lost. God preserves us by restoring us when we fall into sin to repentance, genuine sorrow over sin, renewing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthening us to live a life of good works, which are the fruit of faith, done in thankfulness for our salvation. God deals with us as He dealt with Abraham. On account of our sins, we may find ourselves sunk down into the awful muck and the filth of our own sinful way, and in ourselves, there's no way of escape. God, as it were, reaches down by His hand, and He plucks us out and sets our feet upon the right path again. He may do so, as He did with Abraham, through hard consequences of sin, 
As God brought consequences upon Abraham for his sin, God may do so as he did with Abraham through the rebuke of another. As Abraham was rebuked by Abimelech, so God may use others to rebuke us as we walk in the way of sin. God works in such a way that he brings us to conscious, willing, active sorrow over sin, repentance over sin, faith in Jesus Christ. But always, always the explanation is the sovereign grace and mercy of God which preserves us. Preserves us for Christ's sake. Jesus Christ is in view in this history. God preserves Abraham and Sarah, their marriage and the covenant child, with a view to Christ. At this point in the history, though God has just prior to this, told Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have the child within the next year. Isaac has not yet been conceived. We come to chapter 21, verse 2, we read, For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age. At this point, Isaac was not yet conceived. He would be conceived and born after this history. Now on account of his sinful folly, Abraham, from a human point of view, has jeopardized the conception and the birth of the covenant child. Here is the covenant mother tucked away in the harem of this Philistine king, separated from the covenant father, so that from every human point of view there could not be the conception of the covenant child and the birth of Isaac and birth of the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham, on account of his sin, from a human point of view, had jeopardized it all. He jeopardized the covenant. He jeopardized the covenant promises. He jeopardized the coming of Christ. God preserves Abraham and Sarah, their marriage, the birth of the covenant child Isaac with a view to Christ. What a marvelous display of the faithfulness of God in His covenant. What a marvelous display of the unconditional nature of that covenant. Abraham, on account of his sins, had from a human point of view, jeopardized it all. And that covenant isn't continued and maintained on account of something now that Abraham has done. God sovereignly, graciously, unconditionally, not only has established, but maintains His covenant and His covenant promises. That's the case in the life of Abraham. That's the case in our lives as well. 
We are so unfaithful on account of our sins from a human point of view. We would jeopardize the covenant and its continuance. God preserves us. God unconditionally maintains and preserves his covenant. He did so with Abraham with a view to Christ. He preserves us basis of what Christ has come and accomplished. For the sake of Jesus Christ, He gives us new life. That incorruptible seed of regeneration that can never be taken away from us. For the sake of Christ, He calls us out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. He works in us the gift of faith whereby we believe. For the sake of Jesus Christ, He justifies us. Forgiving us all of our sins, all of our many besetting sins and backslidings. For Christ's sake, He sanctifies and purifies us. For Christ's sake, He preserves us. So that we can never go lost everlastingly. We can never lose that gracious salvation that's ours. For the sake of Jesus Christ. Soon. He will glorify us. Amen. Let us pray. Father who art in heaven, thy word humbles. Pray that it might have that effect upon us. Show us our sins. Show us our besetting sins. Pray that by the working of thy spirit, thou wilt turn us from them. Make us hate them. Strengthen us to flee from them. Pray for the strengthening of our faith. So that in all of life and in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, that we might be strengthened to trust in Thee with all of our heart. Pray, Father, in thanksgiving for the mercies which Thou dost show to us in Christ. We worship Thee and adore Thee for Thy faithfulness, for the undeserved mercy which Thou hast shown to us. Strengthen us in the week to come to live the Christian life as we ought, to battle against temptation, and so to glorify Thee. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us our besetting sins. For Jesus' sake, amen.